0: Today's Into the Gloom bonus episode is brought to you by Deadline Horror Collective. Deadline Horror Collective is an independent publishing house that collaborates with horror authors, publishers, and small presses to release the most terrifying novels possible. Their newest release is The House That Burns by Mike Salt, which is book one of the Price Manor series. Enjoy the show! Greetings, dear listeners. Thomas Gloom here. If you listened to my interview with Christopher Badcock, then you already know that I'm currently in the process of narrating his debut novel, Those You Killed. In talking with him, we decided to release Chapter 1 of that upcoming audiobook for this bonus episode. It really sets the tone for this story that centers on the horrors of addiction. We hope you enjoy, and as you listen, please, remember to leave a light on. Chapter 1. Last Hit Was he like that raindrop? He watched it trickle down his car window, and conceded that yes, he was. On a downward course and dribbling toward the finish line, that was him. That was Elwood Cathis. He wondered what might be waiting there for him at the bottom. Like the rain, would he just disappear into the great gutter of the world? That place which so many called rock bottom? End of the line. That's what they'd say to him when he he'd down in that place. Those who'd fallen off the wagon of life, finding their homes in subways and back alleys, cardboard boxes and derelict buildings. Coffins. He snapped his attention back to the road as the lights turned to green. Cars in front began to slowly shift forward through the downpour toward scattered suburbs that held the promise of a small town somewhere up ahead. Elwood turned onto Crescent Road, and sped up as he left what could barely pass for traffic behind him. That wasn't all he was leaving behind, though. This trip was make or break for him. Either he continued down the window, like the raindrop, or, well, he didn't know what, but something needed to happen. That much, he was sure of. Something needed to change. The prairie landscape which had flanked him on both sides for the last hundred miles or so, abruptly turned to dense woodland, the change marked only by a battered and bullet-hole-riddled sign at the side of the road. Welcome to Mistonville Forest, home of Lake Chance. He squinted through the torrent, straining to make out the rest of the words. Drive safe. Swim safe. Hunt safe. Faded red graffiti advised he should fuck safe rather than hunt safe. The road lived up to its name and held a perfect crescent as it swept through the wooded landscape. Elegant in shape, its form left much to be desired. Potholes and cracks littered the street which, like the sign, had clearly seen better days. The sky overhead darkened gradually, as the evening drew nearer. Elwood glanced at the dash and saw that it was approaching six o'clock. He'd been driving for almost nine hours. He could have taken the train, even flown, but he needed the space. He couldn't be around people right now. The crowds made him anxious, jittery, and when he got that way, he needed to fix it. That was what he was running away from, though. That medicine, that fix. It was ruling his life. Had completely changed his life, in fact. Had changed him. As he drew the car around the curve of the road, he passed another sign on the right. This one hung crooked. A small mountain of empty beer cans spread out on the dirt beneath it. He could still make out the words through the rain. Lake Chance Villas. Homes away from home, by the water, next four miles. And beneath it, barely readable, Woodland Tourist Center. General supplies. Trails, four and a half miles. He hoped he wouldn't need to go into town to pick up anything, and decided he'd visit the store in the morning. He had enough snacks and rum left over from the journey to see him through the night. He'd yet to open the rum. The last thing he needed was another DUI. Plus the bottle was earmarked to help get him through this. Well, get him through the first night at least. Elwood passed a narrow, gravel road leading off to the right. A stubby wooden sign beside the road marked the turnoff as number one. He continued along the road for less than a quarter of a mile before reaching another turnoff and another sign, this one reading, Number 2. He guessed he only had another two miles or so to go. The friendly ghost had given him Number 9 for a week. He'd read somewhere that it could take between 7 and 10 days to get over it, to get it out of your system and be free of it. Casper had initially agreed to a week, among other stipulations, and that he was to call him on the seventh day and let him know how he was doing. If he needed an extra few days, then maybe that would happen. Maybe it wouldn't. You didn't negotiate with Casper Stevens. You accepted whatever gift the horse was offering, and you were sure to be gracious as fuck about it even as you deliberately steered your gaze from its mouth. Number three. He couldn't remember the last time he'd gone seven hours without a fix, let alone seven days. And who did he have to thank for that? The friendly ghost, of course. Number four. No wonder Casper had let him have this place without any argument. He felt guilty. He wanted to help, wanted to clean up the mess he'd made. Number five. As much as he relished the exercise of accusing others for his current situation, Elwood knew deep down that he only had himself to blame. Over the next few days, he expected those buried feelings, and others, to be brought to the fore. It was an expectation that terrified him. Number six. Yes, Casper had certainly helped bring about the downfall of Elwood Cathis. But he himself had been in the driver's seat. It had been his decision to put the pedal to the metal. It had been his hands on the wheel. Now, his knuckles tightened as he cruised through the forest. Number seven. The friendly ghost had just been a passenger, one who occasionally gave directions. All of them bad turns. Everyone knew how hard it was to steer a steady course with a backseat driver, someone in your ear, someone who made it difficult to concentrate. And so, this exercise in culpability continued as it always did. His ex wife would come next. Number eight. And then, perhaps, his estranged sister, his father or that slutty fangirl he met in Charleston. Each had played a part in his ruin. It couldn't just be Elwood's fault. Number nine. He turned off of Crescent Road and onto a gravel lane that wound its way through the trees. The rain and cloudy skies were beginning to subside a little, and the evening growing brighter as a result yet the thick woodland around him seemed to hold on to the darkness and distill it into an altogether different kind of gloom. He could see shapes between the trees, figures, none of them real. As a youngster, he had always enjoyed late walks in bluebell wood, a sprawling forest on the outskirts of his hometown. Smoking joints had been his release, and his wanderings along those dark paths had spawned many of the ideas which had later become international bestsellers. It was during those drug-induced jaunts that he'd imagined things standing in the darkness among the trees. It was easy to do. Hell, take a walk through any forest at night and you'll see whatever your mind wants you to see out there in the dark. Trees become torsos, branches become limbs. He'd always thought that was the key to writing good horror, letting your mind wander to places where there was no horror, and finding it there anyway. It was an art, seeing the terrifying that lay beneath the okay. Elwood continued to follow the road as it snaked its way through the trees. He hadn't thought about writing in at least two years, maybe even three. That's what it had been about at first, though the writing. The weed had heightened his creative thinking as a youngster. And as an adult, maybe heroin would have the same effect. It had been an experiment, and that had made it okay. He wasn't a junkie. He was an explorer, a creative in search of great ideas, unlocking the full potential of his imagination. Not a junkie. Not him. The road was heading downhill now, He could see it opening up into a clearing ahead. And there stood the lake house. Like the signs on the road, it was a sad reminder of what once might have been great. The grand in decline. The two-story red brick sat amid overgrown weeds and wild bush. Its facade crumbling in spots, a shutter missing here and there. But it still held itself with an air of pride. More than could be said of Elwood Cathis, that was for sure. The building's stone chimney still contained every brick. The porch steps all remained. It was a slow and dignified decline, which, coincidentally, was also more than could be said for that of a certain Elwood Cathis. A mixture of birches and maples created a perimeter around the yard, with a few firs dotted in between. Although he couldn't see any treetops beyond the house, this, he assumed, was due to the position of the lake on the other side. The building itself stretched lengthways across the entire clearing. Elwood didn't know why, but he'd assumed it would be much smaller. Less house and more cabin. In fact, he'd been picturing the cabin from the Evil Dead movie. To the far right, the house formed an L-shape, with the porch and front door situated at that end of the property. There was a parking bay to the right of the porch steps, so he steered his car in that direction. He suddenly realized what he might have let himself in for. The friendly ghost was a notorious party animal, a womanizer, a slob, dangerous. Essentially the sort of guy you wanted to remain on the right side of. Elwood dreaded to think what state the interior might be in, what vile surprises he might find. Not that it mattered, anyway. He wasn't here for luxury and relaxation. He was here to find himself, regain himself even, take back everything he'd lost. He kept telling himself these things, but they were only words, words that meant nothing without action. Elwood turned the engine off and removed his keys from the ignition. The rain had stopped completely now, but the clouds had darkened, signaling another imminent downpour. He let his hands drop off the wheel, exhaled, rubbed his knees. This was it. He grabbed his sports bag from the passenger seat and unzipped the side pocket. First came the spoon, then a lighter. Next, a small bag of brown powder. It had been white back when he'd started using. That was a standard that hadn't lasted long, though. White was pure. White was expensive. And oftentimes, white was harder to come by. Brown, black, or rose gray, these were the shades that all junkies eventually settled on when the need for a fix outweighed any concerns for what they were actually putting in their bodies. Anything that wasn't white had been cut with God only knew what. A tiny squeeze bottle of lemon juice, a ball of cotton, which he rolled up tightly between his thumb and middle finger, and finally, a syringe. He emptied some of the powder onto the spoon, added a drop of lemon juice to help break it down, then set the lighter to it. After this, it's hasta la vista, baby. See you later, alligator. He found himself speaking to the liquid that had now formed on the spoon. He paused. I mean it this time. Elwood let the cotton ball soak it up, and then he drew the liquid from this and into the syringe. At least he was alone for this one, and had his own needle, which nobody else had played with. He had lost count of the number of times he'd played roulette with HIV and Hep C. Sharing syringes was a dangerous game, but that had always been part of the fun, too. Part of the high. Like fucking somewhere where you might get caught or waiting until you could see the train before crossing the track. There was still some left in the bag, but he stowed it away in the glove box. He wouldn't be needing it. But that didn't mean it had to be thrown away. There was a brief moment in which he considered rolling his window down and emptying the bag onto the wet gravel. But that would be stupid. If things went wrong, he'd need it. He'd need something to fall back on, something to tide him over until he got back to LA. He set the syringe down in his lap and removed the belt from around his waist, then strapped it tightly around his bicep. He went to his favorite spot, the skin irritation showing just how often he had visited, and pierced the flesh with the needle, before gently pushing it into his vein. He brought his thumb down, and with it, the heroine, skag, smack, helicopter, lifesaver, whatever he was calling it this time, entered his bloodstream intravenously, and Elwood Cathis mainlined for the last time. This chapter was taken from the upcoming audiobook version of Those You Killed by Christopher Badcock, and was published by Blood Bloodrights Horror. Narration. By Thomas Gloom. It was used here with the permission of the author and publisher.